Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you uh, grab your Bible and go ahead and open to Psalm 16. So before I, before I read Psalm 16, I just want to remind you that Psalms are songs or poems, right? This is, this is literature of a different type than what we've been studying in Colossians, what we've uh, you know, read in Joshua. These are songs. These are poems. They are meant to cause an emotional reaction. This is meant, there, there's surely truth, there's surely doctrine in the Psalms, but their goal is not chiefly to communicate the truth, the doctrine, but to make you feel the truth and the doctrine. So when, when I read it, look for those emotional words. Look for those things that are supposed to make you feel something. And I, my, my goal, and as I'm going to pray after I read, I need the Spirit's help to make sure that I communicate clearly that range of emotions, the highs that are in this psalm, particularly towards the end, and the lows that David communicates as well. This is a journey that David's going to take us on, an emotional journey as he is struggling, as he is fearful, and where he finds refuge. So be on the lookout for those words. So Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, I am acutely aware this morning of my 
need for you to preach these 11 verses, Lord, to communicate the heaviness, the importance, the eternal significance of the message from Psalm 16. Lord, so I pray that you would send your spirit now, Lord, send your spirit upon me and use my mouth that you would communicate clearly to the people listening here and online what you would have them know from this psalm, Lord. Instruct their hearts, Lord. Make it clear to them their need, Lord, and their refuge. Lord, I pray all this with great faith, knowing that you have given us your spirit for our good and for your glory. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So this psalm opens, and David is desperate. Preserve me, O God. What's he saying? Save me. Keep me. Help! David is in danger. He is afraid. And what does he do? He turns to God. Oh God, for in you I take refuge. He is in trouble. He needs help. And he turns to God. He believes that God can help him, whatever his trouble is, which is not totally clear here at the beginning. He believes that he needs help and that God can help him. This is not, it would appear, a little problem. This is not a, hey, I got a little problem I need some help with. This is help. I am without hope apart from you. I take refuge in you, Lord. The word refuge made me think of the cities of refuge. Remember that when we studied uh, Joshua? I think it was Tyler who preached that Sunday. And he had one of his kids come up here, and they talked about uh, accidental death, manslaughter, and, and you could, um, if you accidentally killed someone, I think you dropped a brick off a wall or something like that, right? You guys remember that? So if that happened, right, and you were fearing retribution, you were fearing revenge from the family of the person that had died, that you could take off, you could run to one of these cities of refuge that were scattered strategically around Israel, And inside the walls of that city, you would be safe. You could not be touched by the family of that fallen person. You could not, revenge could not come upon you. You were safe inside the walls of that city. That's the kind of trouble we're talking about for David. We're talking about life and death. More than that, as we will see, This psalm makes it clear that what we need refuge from more than anything else is not death itself, not any problem that we have here in life. What we need is refuge from the abandonment of God. From the abandonment of God in death specifically. 
is what David is talking about. So by the end of this psalm, it's clear that that's David's concern, that he is worried, he is fearful that God will abandon him when he dies. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought what's going to happen when you die? It's a problem for us too. It's not just a problem for David. It's a problem for everyone. What is going to happen when I die? So, I'm going to break this psalm into three sections. I'll give you the titles now. I'll, I'll tell them to you again. First one is, God is your only true God. That's verses 1 to 4. Verses 5 through 8 is, take refuge in your God. Take refuge in your God. And point three is, eternal, unshakable, fullness of joy with your God. Verses last half of 8 to 11. So let's jump in here. Verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So David, in trouble, runs to the Lord. And what does he do? He pledges himself to the Lord. He pledges himself to God and God alone. Lord, you are my Lord. Now when I say that, it might sound kind of redundant. Lord, you are my Lord. But if you look at it as it's written in your Bible, it's Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you are my Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d. When you see that capital L-O-R-D, behind that is the name for God, Yahweh. So when he says, Lord, you are my Lord, that first Lord is saying, Yahweh, you are my Lord. Yahweh. And when he says Yahweh, he's identifying very clearly that he means the God of Abraham and Jacob. And he's calling him by that personal name. That intimate name. So it conveys an intimate, personal connection with God. So he's very clearly identifying who is his God and that he is close to his God. He knows this God. And then he says, you are my Lord. So Yahweh, you are my Lord. That word Lord, the second Lord, the lowercase Lord, is Adonai in the Hebrew. Adonai, which means master or sovereign. So he is pledging himself. He is saying, Yahweh, you are my master. Yahweh, you are my sovereign. This is a pledge of allegiance to God. A recognition that God is right in his rule over him and that that David is totally submitting himself to God's sovereignty. Lord, you are my Lord. Then David identifies All good as coming from God. I have no good apart from you. All things that are good are because of God. Nothing for David was good if it wasn't from God or a part of his purposes. So if you chase after what is good, if you want what is good, you need to chase after God and only after God after Yahweh. 
There is no good apart from God. There is nothing to go after that is good that isn't a part of God. David, in trouble, runs to God, pledges his allegiance to God, and declares that all good comes from God. That's verses 1 and 2. When you hit trouble, when you are fearful, when you are afraid, is that what you do? Is your first inclination to run to God and declare him as your master? To submit to his rule totally and completely and declare everything about him as good and all good as coming from him? I know that's not always my first inclination, but that's what David does. Fearful, fearing something greatly, he runs directly to God, acknowledges him, and pledges himself to him. Something to consider. We go on in verse 3 and 4. David identifies two groups of people. In verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, who are the saints? I think it's very, fairly clear that you can say the saints are the ones who say, Lord, you are my Lord. These are those that are following after God. Those that have claimed God as their master. Yahweh, you are my sovereign. And what do we see about the saints? They are excellent. They are the excellent ones. They are exceeding in virtue. And in them, David finds delight. Now, why does he find them to be excellent? Why does he find them exceeding in virtue and goodness? Or why does he find delight in them? Is it because they are amazing people? They are supremely kind? And generous? They may be, but this is an extension of the goodness of God. David is identifying the people of God, those that follow God, those that are the friends of God, as an extension of God's goodness. They are the embodiment of God's goodness on earth. So amongst the people of God, amongst the people that call him master, that is where David finds delight. That is where David finds excellence among the people of God. Then in verse 4, the second group. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David clearly connects sorrow as the result of following another God. And this shouldn't be surprising. This is, as an engineer, this is logical to me. If God is the source of all things good, then if you run after something other than God, you should expect the opposite of good. You should expect sorrow. I'm running from good, I should expect the opposite, sorrow. David says very clearly, I will not. I will not participate in their rituals. I will not accept any, any right of their faith. 
I will not even speak the name of their God. David is drawing a clear distinction between those who follow God, those who call him master, and those who do not. And he is clearly showing that among the people that follow God, there is delight, and among the people who run after another God, there is sorrow. Now, I think it's important to note that this is not a call to flee from those who don't know God. I think you could read this and say, I have to stay away from anyone that doesn't know God and only stay with those that do know God. Stay away from those that have their life full of sorrow and stay with those that have delight. I don't think that's what David's saying here. And I I think we all know, as we have talked about for the entirety of this church, Our mission is to go to those that don't know God. They need to know God, and we are here to tell them. We need to go and proclaim the goodness of God to those who don't know. But we need to proclaim only the goodness of God to those who don't know, and nothing else. We are to flee from other gods, not from the people who are captured by them. To them, we need to proclaim the goodness of God. But be aware and be careful that those other gods are out there vying for your attention, vying for your allegiance. And note that there is no third category here. There is not the category of people that call God master and yet go after another god. That's not an option. This is a binary choice. You either follow hard after God or you're following after another God. There is no good, there is no refuge to be found in another God or in anything else. I think this is particularly apt for us these days. There are many things vying for our attention and vying for our allegiance. Many things that claim that they will save us, they will help us, they will provide for us. These verses very clearly show us that there is nothing else in which we can seek refuge. And we're going to talk in a minute about what it's like to be in the refuge of God, and there is nothing else that will provide those things. They will promise them, but they will fail. Only in the refuge of God can we find goodness, can we find delight. So, having pledged himself to God, declared God as good, now David, in verses uh, 5 through 8, tells us what it's like to be in that refuge of God. What does it look like if Lord is your Lord, if Yahweh is your master? What is it like? So I think there are are three main things. First is God is sovereign. In verses 5 and 6, we see David talking to us about how God is sovereign. If you are fearful about the future, if you are fearful as as uh, Alex was, 
was uh, praying between songs. If you don't know what the future holds for you, this is where you want to go. You want a God who is sovereign, who is in control. Let's look at it. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, and you hold my lot. And then verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So here in these verses, we get get David repeating himself to some degree. This is the present and the future. God is sovereign over the present. God is present over the future, or sovereign over the future. God is sovereign over the short term. He is sovereign over the long term. He is my portion and my cup. God is providing. He is nourishing. He is meeting our needs daily. God holds his lot, right? His lot. He's, when they cast lots, God holds that. God knows the future. He holds his fate, his future in his hand. He is in complete and total control. So no matter our circumstances, we can trust him to provide for our needs now, and as we will see, most importantly, in the future. God provides a pleasant, lovely, or beautiful present. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What is that pleasant place? That place is in the presence of God. So when he's talking about a pleasant place, he's not talking about a home or a job. He's talking about in the presence of the Lord. And those lines are the protection and the boundaries of God to keep David close to himself. And those lines have fallen have fallen. So right now, past tense, my wife would tell me the correct tense, that future perfect, I I can't remember, have fallen. It's now. They have fallen and I am experiencing it now. I am hemmed in by the boundary lines of God to stay near to him in the pleasant place of his presence. And not only that, But I have a beautiful inheritance for the future, inheritance going forward. So I am hemmed in now, and I can be confident that God is sovereign and providing that beautiful inheritance for the future. So in this, David is showing us that he finds satisfaction. He finds his comfort. He finds his contentment and the guarantee of that for the future with his God, with his master, not in the things that God provides, although God will provide, but he finds his contentment with God himself. In verse 7, we see God as counselor. So again, what is it like to be in the refuge, refuge in your God? You have God as counselor in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. 
Can you imagine having God as your counselor? Shouldn't have to imagine. We have God as our counselor. All the wisdom, all the knowledge, full, full knowledge of the future, the past, the present, all things. He doesn't have to suppose. He doesn't have to imagine. You have the wisdom of the Lord as your counselor. And in the second part of that verse, we see, in the night also my heart instructs me. It's kind of a weird, a weird thing to say. If you have a footnote in your Bible, heart can also be translated as kidneys. So in the night, my kidneys instruct me. <laughs> you ever felt that way, that your kidneys were instructing you? I think what he's trying to say is that when trouble comes, I have the truth of God packed down in my gut. It's deep in me so that it will guide me in, in the troubles when I face them. David has bathed himself in the truth of God, in the counsel of the Lord, so that when he hits trouble, when night comes, the truth is down deep in his gut and ready to instruct him. Finally, in verse 8, what is it like to be in the refuge of God? I have set the Lord always before me. In the refuge of God, we have the Lord always before us to provide, to guide, to shepherd us. Makes me think of the Israelites as they were wandering in the desert and they had uh, the, 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 the pillar of fire guiding them, right? The Lord was before them. They followed behind him. In the refuge, in refuge in God, we have God always before him. Now, this is, this is David's intention. If you know the stories of David, David surely had times in his life where God was not before him. He failed. He, like us, was a sinner. He made mistakes. But this is his intention. He re recognizes that he needs for God to be above all others, all the time, following after him. And he states emphatically that God must remain at his right hand. I have set the Lord always before me because he as is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So what do we find here in the refuge of God? We find David calling out God as the highest thing to be treasured more than anything else. He is his highest counselor. He is in full control. And why is this? Because all good comes from God and God alone. So my third point now, 
eternal, unshakable fullness of joy with your God. Eternal, unshakable fullness of joy with your God. So he's recognized that in the refuge of God, the thing to be treasured most is being in the presence of God. Having God at his right hand, always leading him, always counseling him, sovereign and in control over everything of the present and in the future. And we see, consider, consider the dichotomy from the first verse to now where we are in verse 9, in the end of verse 8. Because we started out with, preserve me, help! And now, at the end of verse 8, because he is at my right hand, because God is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. What a difference. God has, or David has preached the truth of who God is and what it is like to be in refuge with God. And no longer is he crying out in desperation, but he is arising confident that he is secure with God at his right hand. And in verse, the end of verse 9 and verse 10, we finally see what it is that he was afraid of, what was giving him fear back in verse 1. Or at the very least, as he's considered his circumstances, what he realizes is ultimately his fear and what he needs help with more than anything else. So verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. David has identified himself with God at his right hand, being in the favored presence of God, putting God at that place of honor, the right hand, the thing that he should most treasure. And so the thing that he fears most is the loss of that, being abandoned no longer with God at his right hand, being abandoned my soul abandoned to Sheol. Now, Sheol is not exactly, sometimes it's translated as hell or Hades. I don't think, my understanding is that's not exactly how David would have understood it or, or the Israelites at that time would have understood it, but more as the place, so, so we understand hell and Hades as a place of judgment, a place of God's wrath, but they would have simply seen it as a place of the dead. That's where the dead go when they die and are buried. That's, that's my understanding. But David here identifies it as something more. A place where you are abandoned by God. Where God would no longer be at David's right hand. Let's consider abandonment from God for a moment. In verses 1 to 3 and 5 to 8, We've been told what it's like to take refuge in God. And in verse 11, which we'll get to in a minute, we're going to see more about what it's like to be in his presence forever. 
But let's consider abandonment for a minute. Consider the removal of all of those things that we talked about, what it's like to have refuge in God. I'm going to read through this list. And I think it would be easy to zone out. Because one, it's not very pleasant. And two, I'm going to say it slowly. But don't zone out. Focus on this for a minute. Consider, let your mind Take this in and imagine what it would be like to be abandoned by God. Abandoned by God. No refuge. No safety. No security. You're exposed. You're vulnerable. You're insecure. There's no good. So there's loss. There's wickedness, there's pain, and there's trouble. No delight, only sorrow and disappointment. Loss and misery. No provision, no nourishment, lack, want, hunger, need. Nothing pleasant or beautiful, only nastiness, rudeness, ugly, repulsive, harsh. No wisdom or instruction, only ignorance, ineptitude, folly. No joy or pleasure, only woe and mourning, depression gloom no life only death and this is not for a month or a day not for a season not even for a lifetime this is forever more all day every day in an endless succession of unending days no breaks no vacation, no reprieve. Abandonment from God. This is what David feared. This is why he cried out for help. And this is just a small taste. And of course we know that it's not only the abandonment of God, the, the, the loss of God at our right hand, the loss of good, the loss of delight. We know that when you die, if you do not call, Lord, you are my Lord, you will receive abandonment, you will receive the wrath of God and the judgment of God of God. The holy, righteous wrath and judgment of God will be poured out on you forever. If this is you this morning, if you see yourself amongst those who are chasing after another God that we talked about from verse 4, and I pray that you would recognize your need that you would 
see that you need the God of the universe at your right hand, that you would humble yourself and cry out to him for refuge. David has identified his greatest fear as the abandonment by God because his joy, his delight, his beautiful inheritance, his counsel and instruction is being with God, being in his presence. He doesn't want to lose that. That is the thing that we should treasure above all else. Everything else that we treasure should point to or echo how we treasure God. But as we come to the end here, we see that David is rejoicing. For David has seen that death is not the end. For the holy ones of verse 3, the path of life, the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So let's read, starting in verse 10 again. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Death is not the end. There, is, there are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. Now consider for a moment that if you were singing this before Calvary, this might have been a bit of a head-scratcher because David did die, and he was buried, and I suspect that if you went and checked his body, it had decayed a little bit. It was corrupted. It had rotted. It had decomposed. But David believed this, and it's written here in Psalm 16. So we know that as the word of God, it is true. So how do we understand this? Well, I'm really glad that Peter, in Acts chapter 2, explains it to us. So if you can, real quick, flip over to Acts chapter 2. And starting in verse 25, Peter, and this is his sermon on Pentecost, Peter quotes the end of this psalm, the end of Psalm 16. And I'm going to read starting in verse 29 where he explains this for us. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this 
that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So David died. I don't think that David understood how this was going to work. But he believed because God had told him that God would bring about his kingdom, that, that there would be a king that would sit on his throne that would not die, that whose kingdom would never end. God, David believed that God was going to make this happen. And here in Acts 29, Peter explains it to us. David was talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who was not abandoned to Hades. Jesus is the one whose flesh was not corrupted, whose body was never harmed. It did not decompose. It was not left dead and buried in the ground. He was raised, his flesh was secured, and he sits now at God's right hand. David saw it dimly, but believed it firmly. We see it more clearly. And that should transform how we live. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we do not have to fear. We who call him Lord do not have to fear being abandoned by God in life or in death. And we don't have to keep him at our right hand. He secures us. He has paid the price so that we can be secure in following God and being secured for this life and for the next. He is seated at the right hand, advocating for me, advocating for you. He is sitting at the right hand in that place of honor, providing protection for all of us that call him Lord. Our future is secure because of Jesus and what he did at Calvary for us, conquering death, securing not only his own flesh and body and future, but ours as well. So church, we don't need to seek after any other God. There is nothing to be found in any other God. We can find all that we need in God and God alone, as David has told us here. Complete security, endless wisdom, the greatest good, fullness of joy forevermore. Today, here, we are limited in our ability to see God clearly and to experience his presence fully. It's dulled. It's there. We can experience it, but it's dulled by our sin and by our flesh. But one day, one day we will be fully in his presence and we will be freed from sin completely. We will be freed from our bodies to fully experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in the presence of our God. You pray with me?
Dear Lord, thank you for Psalm 16. Lord, thank you that you gave these words to David to preach to himself, to tell himself the truth of who you are. Lord, and give him a glimpse of what you would do, Lord, that we now know through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us each day to chase after no one but you, Lord, to call nothing else master besides you, besides our Lord. Lord, I pray for everyone here. Lord, I pray for myself. There are many temptations in this world. Keep us from them, Lord. Help us to flee from those things that would tempt us, Lord. But help us to go to those that need to hear of the great refuge that you provide. Lord, and help us to look to you and you alone for all that we need all that we desire. Help us to look for you, to you and to you alone for the joy and delight and fulfillment, Lord. And help us to trust that you are sovereign over this life and the next, Lord. That we are secure in your hand, Lord, because of your son and what he has done for us. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.